Exodus chapter 33. I want to finish up a sermon that I actually began three weeks ago. On July 25th, last time I was uh, speaking here. And it has to do with the heart, the center, the crystallized core of faith. What is faith? We're, we're actually in, in Romans or in Hebrews 11 right now. And we're studying kind of the heroes of faith. We've talked a lot about what faith is, and now we're looking at examples of faith. And I've been zeroing in here on Moses as one of the paradigm faith-filled figures in in Hebrews chapter 11. And that's led us to Exodus 33, which is, I think, one of the best illustrations of what faith is, at least in the life of Moses. The background of this, uh, the sermon that I preached several weeks ago was basically this, in a nutshell. It's funny how when I review a sermon, I can do it in three minutes, but it takes me 45 minutes to give it. But here's a three-minute review. Children of Israel have been out of uh, Egypt. They've been walking through the desert. They come to Mount Sinai. God wants to seal the covenant with them. Moses goes up on the mountain in order to get the Ten Commandments and to talk with God. He's gone a little too long. The children of Israel begin to freak out. They make for themselves golden calves, which is basically the ancient way of making false gods to themselves, false security. They liked a God that was more tangible rather than a God who was up on some mountain. So they made for themselves these golden calves. God gets very irate at this whole thing and is going to destroy them. Moses intercedes and stops that from happening. So then God says this. Okay, tell you what, Moses, out of fidelity to you, I'm I'm not going to start over again and wipe these people out. But I'm very irate with them. So here's my plan. This is my second plan now. You go ahead and go to the land of Israel. You you, you go to the, the promised land. The land flowing with milk and honey. I'll give you an angel who will lead you and you'll have victory over the Canaanites, the Jebusites, the Hittites, and all the other ites there. I'll give you victory, but I'm going to stay here. I'm not going to go with you. Then there's a a section in, in, in Exodus 33 that the author now then backs off a little bit and describes the friendship that Moses has with God. The intimate friendship that Moses has with God. They would talk with each other on a regular basis, face to face. That's what friendship with God means. And the author does that in order to set up this discussion that we're going to start with in verse 12. Moses said to the Lord, this is an example of the intimate friendship that he had with the Lord. See, you have said to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. And yet you said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Moses hears the Lord saying, Moses, you go ahead. I'll give you my promises, but I'm not going to go with you. And the first response of Moses, the friend of God, is to say, Lord, I'm so alone. Every time I read that verse, it hits me. <laughs> I'm so alone. Lord, I... And so the first thing he thinks of is this. I don't even have... You said you were going to give me somebody to help me. And you haven't even given me this. You haven't even given me someone to help lead this people. And now you're telling me you're going to pull out of this? He says in verse 13, Now, if I have found favor in your sight, show me your ways, so that I may know you and find favor in your sight. Look at that. Lord, if in fact I found favor in your sight, show me your ways that I can find more favor in your sight. I want to walk with you, God. I want to know you, Lord God. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. First thing that hits the heart of Moses is a sense of loneliness, his emptiness, without a human friend, really. And now, with God saying that he's not going to be present in his life, so Moses actually just hungers and thirsts after God and says, Lord, show me your ways. I want to know you. I want to know you. And what he's actually saying there, as we discussed several weeks ago, is he's saying, Lord, you can take your milk and honey land, 
You can take your angel and you can take all the victories any leader of a nation would ever want. And you can have it all, but what I want is you. What I want is you, Lord. Not the victories. Not the land. So the Lord, who always just rushes to fill the vacuum of a human heart that's open to him, the Lord says, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. He says, okay, okay, I, I'll, I'll do that, I want to do that. Now Moses is still kind of in his own head here and he says, so he doesn't really hear the Lord say, I'm going to go with you. So Moses says, Lord, if your presence will not go, do not carry us up from this place. Now listen to this. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people, unless you go with us? And in what way will we be distinct among all the peoples on the face of the earth? What Moses is saying there, and this is what I want to preach on this morning, is this, Lord, if you're not with us, if you're not with us, then there's nothing distinctive about us. There's nothing unique about us. The victory is not going to make us unique. The angel that you're going to give us isn't going to make us unique. The land that you're going to give us isn't going to make us unique. You make us unique. And if you're not there, well then, 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 then we have got nothing distinct about us. And that's what I want to talk on this morning. Let's pray before we start. Father, I, I pray in Jesus' name that you would anoint this message and make it useful to producing kingdom fruit in our life. Lord, more than anything else, I pray that we would be a people who hunger and thirst after you and nothing else, really. People, Lord, who know that our identity is found in you and in nothing else. A people, Lord God, who do not chase after fluff and stuff, milk and honey, promised lands, Lord. But I pray, Lord, that you would use this message to help make us, further make us a people who chase after you, who want you, and you are our reason for being and ultimately nothing else. Do it, Lord God. That's your job, not mine. I can talk. You've got to make this kingdom fruit happen, Lord. Let your spirit rest here in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Those of you who have been around Woodland Hills Church for a while know this about me. Um, I tend to sometimes, uh, not sometimes, all the time, basically, I have a sort of skeptical nature. Um, I, there's a strand of cynicism in me. Um, that, uh, that sometimes is, is strong, sometimes it's weak, but it's always a little bit present there. That's my. Some people are born, I think, with a, a kind of a, a sense. Uh, faith comes natural to them. It's like childlike faith. They just God said it, I believe it, and that settles it for me. But I've never been like that. Uh, I, I've, it's always been hard, frankly, for me to be a believer. Now, fortunately, there's a lot of good reasons. For being a Christian, I think there's good, solid, indisputable evidence that Christianity is true, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that the Bible is the inspired Word of God. So I've got good reasons for believing it, but i got to tell you, if I'm really honest with you, and why else talk to people if you're not going to be honest with them, that it, that's, that it doesn't always come easy for me. And sometimes I have this question, and I know that some of you do too, where you just step back and you ask the question, what is real here? What is really going on? What is this really all about? What's, what, what is real? Honestly now. What, what, what are we doing here? Right here, right now. What are we doing here? What's real about this? Did you ever see the movie Leap of Faith? Steve Martin? Uh, I, I really like that show. Um, 
God wins in the end. If you watch the show, it, it got, it's about a con man, a charlatan, a rip-off con artist. Uh, and that's disturbing, but in the end, God wins. Watch the movie, you'll, you'll see that. But uh, there's a section where this rip-off, this con artist played by Steve Martin does a great job. You know, hallelujah. Um, <laughs> I, 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 I've learned a lot of good antics from him. He comes into town, sets up a tent, and, and does a lot of show, and does some, you know, tricks, and, and gets people worked up into a frenzy, and claims a lot of healings, and it's all a big show. And at one point, he's confronting this kid who really is crippled, and who really wants to be healed, and he confesses that he is, in fact, not a, the real thing. And he says, basically, this kid, I, I, I'm selling a bill, I, I'm, I'm selling something here. I'm selling a, a, a show, I'm selling a little bit of hope, for a little, for a little moment in, in, in time, these people will have a little more hope than they usually do. That's what I'm selling. I take their money and I'm out of here. And it's gross. It's, it's just gross. But there is in me something that asks that question a lot. What are we really doing here? Is Christianity a kind of a show? I think it's just, you know, you get people a little bit excited on Sunday morning and, and, and give them a little message that will help them get through the week just to make it another day. And, you know, and, and that's basically it. Now see, that kind of questioning, the devil can jump on that kind of cynicism and ride you into the ground with it. But it's also the case, I believe, that God can use that kind of questioning. I don't think the doubt is in and of itself bad. God can use that kind of questioning to distill our faith, to get very real, very concrete, very honest with ourselves, and ask the question, what is really going on? In, in, in a way, it's a purifying Kind of a question. This passage that I'm looking at this morning, Exodus 33, verse 16, where Moses says, Lord, if you are not present with us, what is distinctive about us has that kind of purifying effect. It gets us down to the core issue, which is this. What is really real? What is distinctive? What are we doing here? What is this really, really about? What am I really, right now, honestly, trying to accomplish here? And if we learn from Moses, the only answer that is justified from a faith perspective is this. What we are about is knowing God. Because God knows us. And being a people of the presence. Period. Amen. What we are about is being a people who know God because God has known us. Being a people who live in the presence of God. Period. The thing is this. There is always a tendency. There was with Israel and there is with us. There is always a tendency for the people of God to get sidetracked. And to begin to try to make other things distinctive about us. In addition to, or sometimes to the exclusion of, the presence of God. Being a people among whom God dwells isn't enough. And to the degree that we chase after things other than God as a part of our distinctiveness, we're not people of faith. Let me break down the kinds of things that we tend to chase after into two categories. The first is flashy stuff, and the second is character stuff. Both of them, I believe, are distractions from what faith really is to be going after. Let me talk about these flashy stuff. By flashy stuff, I mean this. Israel always had a tendency to want to be like other nations. They wanted to, to fit in. They wanted to do it as good as other nations. 
Other nations had golden calves, so Israel wanted a golden calf. Other nations had a king, so Israel wanted a king. Other nations had temples set up on high hills, so Israel wanted temples set up on high hills. Whatever the other people had, they wanted to have, and they wanted to have it better. They thought that God, that what was distinctive is that God might give them advantage in competing with the world and doing what the world does a little better than the world does it. The church, I think, has, to some degree, the same tendency. See, the people of the world like flashy stuff. It's because they've got nothing else going for them. This is their life. They like it big. They like it wild. They like it, you know, nice. And they like good buildings and nice cars and, and all those other things because that's what they live for. And there's a tendency among the church, sometimes with good motives, because we want to reach the people of the world, we try to, we try to give them what they want. They want flash, we give them flash. They want dazzle, we give them dazzle. And it can happen if we're not careful that that becomes the thing that we hang our hat on. That becomes the distinctive thing that we hang our hat on. A couple of examples of this. One is very pertinent to us right now as we're just beginning a building campaign. One of the things, building campaigns, what do you call it? Campaign, fundraise, project, whatever. I don't even know what to call it. But it can happen that that, um, that can become a sort of a, you know, a thing that you try to go after to, to, to get something distinctive. Traditionally, I think, one of the things that Christians have tended to, traditionally, historically speaking, things that we've tried to make distinctive about a particular congregation was its building. That's so why we have these humongous cathedrals out in the middle of nowhere throughout all of Europe. The last time I, I took a stab at cathedrals uh, at Wilden Hills, uh, I had a couple people who were a little irate who reminded me of the fact, and this is true, that, that the architects... And the artists who, went, who, who did their work in those cathedrals were sincere, godly people who simply wanted to glorify God with excellence, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. But the question you've got to ask yourself is this. Should the church ever have gotten into that way of channeling uh, godly architecture and, 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 and uh, artistic work? Should the church have got into the business of building big buildings? What's real is that there also was, while they were building those big cathedrals, a lot of competition going on among different feudal lords for whom it was kind of a thing of pride to have the biggest and the flashiest and the best and the most ornate cathedral in their feudal manner. That was kind of a thing. Bishops got a lot of life from having a lot of, you know, having the, the biggest uh, uh, cathedral in the land. It would attract pilgrims or people who would go on pilgrimages, which would bring revenue. So it was an economic thing as well. And... A lot of the ways that those major cathedrals were funded was by t selling indulgences to peasants who were near starvation, but who wanted to stay out of millions of years in purgatory. So while there was good intentions in building a lot of those big buildings and whatnot, it became a prideful, to some degree prideful, economic mark of distinctiveness for bishops and feudal lords, and that's why these big buildings were built. But we Protestants can't too quickly throw stones at that because we are ourselves often guilty of the same thing, are we not? I've been looking into different buildings lately, different building programs, and because we're going to be, uh, we're starting our own little building program here. And one specialist told me uh, to check out this one church because they do it, they do it right. These people really have it down. You want to, you want to kind of use them as a model. And I went to this place just to check out how they do it. And I, I, I want to be cautious here. I'm not going to name names. And I, I, I don't even want to uh, 
I'm struggling here. I I don't want to pass judgment, but I I just got to be honest with you that my heart was deeply grieved. Uh, Walking into this place, uh, first thing you see is a display, uh, a thing that must have... Uh, it, it was it, Hollywood could hardly have done it better. Uh, that 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 was selling the building and the building project, and and it was it, it itself had to cost thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars. And this building was was so ornate, and 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 um, uh, one phase of the program, one phase of a multi-phase program, was to raise over 20 million dollars in one year. A church a little bit bigger than Woodland Hills, not much. Uh, but they were raising $20 million in one year, and I'm told the whole project was going to come to 60-some million dollars before it's all said and done. Um, and I, there's something in my... Now, I understand, you see, I've learned this, that it's going to take uh, several million dollars to build a building, no matter what you, what you do. Uh, it's going to cost several million dollars, and, and I understand that, and I believe... In my heart of hearts, that it is good stewardship to do that because there's more you can do in the long run with a building than you can do without it. I think that it's good stewardship to make that investment for a season in order to give a foundation so you can do other things through that building. But one thing, and this brings it full circle, one thing we've got to keep in front of our faces at all times is this. God can use a building to build the kingdom of God, but the building is not the kingdom of God. Amen? We always got to keep that in perspective. I believe that on the judgment day, God may say to some people, uh, well done, good and faithful service, uh, servants. You used a building wisely. But I am perfectly certain that he will never say to anybody, well done, good and faithful servants. You built a great building. You see, the building isn't what glorifies God, but God can be glorified through the building. It disturbs me. I, 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 it, it pushes the... the cynic button inside of me when I see that we can raise so sometimes in some places raise so many millions and millions of dollars for things that are about us we can't raise a dime when it's about anyone else there's something wrong with that what's got to be distinctive as we go into this building project and and we're going to need to have commitment and and people getting behind this because they see that it's an investment in the kingdom of God but what we've always got to have and God, God can use in this congregation people who are architects and who, people who are artists and we want to glorify God with excellence and there's nothing wrong with a nice building and we'll take whatever we got, whether it's a, a theater downtown or the Kmart building or some garage that God might open up for us, who knows. We'll do the best we can with what we've got. But we've always got to know this. What is distinctive about it should not be the building. What is distinctive about it should be the presence of God that's going to fill the building. Amen? You don't want to... We don't want a building where people are going to go, wow, what a building. What we want is a building where people are going to enter and say, wow, what a presence of God. Oh, what a Savior. What a Lord fills this place. And the building, the only reason for it being there is that you can glorify God more in terms of what you do, in terms of getting together to worship. You can glorify God more with it than without it. But if it becomes the goal, then you've utterly defeated the purpose. There's other ways that we can get flashy with ourselves. We can get preaching. Preaching. What's, I've always got to be honest here and ask myself the question, what am I really, honestly, peel back the onion to the core, peel, you know, just get to the core of it, what are you doing, Greg? What are you about? What are you trying to accomplish? What's real about what you're doing? Good questions to ask. These are, 
this, is, this, is, this is good stuff. And sometimes it's painful stuff. There's a story that was, uh, I forget where I read it, um, but it's, uh, it's a true story. Uh, there was a, in the 19th century, a, a man, an unsaved man who was brought by a saved man, a Christian, to a, a tent revival meeting and heard this uh, outstanding speaker uh, at this tent revival meeting someplace. And, and boy, it was, he was, this guy was ripping it up, you know, and, and everything was great. And at the end, the unsaved man said to his friend as they walked out of that tent revival meeting, wow, what a preacher. That guy can really speak. Then the man took him, the Christian took the unsaved man to a, a tent meeting or a church meeting uh, where D.L. Moody was preaching uh, in Chicago. And D.L. Moody apparently was not as impressive of a speaker and, and didn't quite dot all of his I's and cross all of his T's. But the man walked out of that meeting, a believer, saying, wow, what a savior. See, there's a world of difference between impressing people with Jesus Christ and just impressing people. And it's, I know there, there's a fleshy tendency. Because people like razzle-dazzle, they like this well-crafted humor uh, and whatnot. There's a fleshy tendency to shift the focus and to ask the question, how am I doing, instead of asking the question, what is God doing? What are the difference between those two? It concerns me a little bit. I, I sometimes believe, my experience has been that sometimes seminaries are more concerned with the second question than the first question. Here's how you give a good speech. You know, here's how you connect your points. Here's how you, you know, do this with that and the other thing. And see, it's good. It's necessary that a person who does the preaching has a gift of communication. It's torture to listen to someone preach who doesn't have the gift of communication. So thank God for the gift of communication. Nothing wrong with that. And it's good that the person who's got the gift works at refining the gift. Because God deserves the best. You want to be the best you can be. So yes, work at it. Work at your communication skills. Put time into that. But if, when they all is said and done, people walk away saying, that is a good speech, rather than saying, that is a magnificent Lord, you really missed the target. What's distinctive, what's got to be distinctive from beginning to end about the people of God, is not that they can do good buildings or do good speeches. It's got to be that they know the good Lord. Praise God. They know the great God. And God uses whatever they do to accomplish His purposes. Music is in the same category. We've got to remind ourselves of this over and over and over again. What is distinctive about this? We've got to just make this commitment. Norm did such a good job of reminding us of this this morning. If you were here at 9 o'clock, and 12 of you were... Uh, that's a different sermon. <laughs> this place amazes me. I, I, beginning of the service, I'm thinking I missed the rapture or something. <laughs> Ten minutes later, I'm going, oh, wow, thanks, thank you. <laughs> I, guess, I guess not. Um, but what Nor reminded us of, uh, us of is this. What we want is not at the end of everything to say, wow... That was a kicking song service. Wow, what a great leader, uh, worship leader Norm is. Wow, I really like those songs. Wow, what a great band we have. What we want in our worship service, before our worship service, is at the end of our worship services to be saying, Wow, what a Savior. Wow, isn't He beautiful. Wow, isn't He lovely. Wow, isn't He glorious. Wow, isn't the presence of God in this place. And thank God for excellent music. Nothing wrong with excellent music or excellent preaching or an excellent building. But they're only useful to the kingdom of God. What's distinctive is not the excellence. What's distinctive is the God who uses us in our excellence and in our non-excellence to do what he wants to do. It always has to be before us. What's distinctive about us has got to be the presence of God. The heart of faith, the heart of faith, as Moses illustrates it, is a heart that says, God, we want you. God, we want you. Before the excellent milk and honey, before the excellent land, before the excellent victories, before the excellent angel, we want you. We hunger and thirst after you. 
Because when all is said and done, the one thing that's distinctive about the people of God is that they know God and are known by God and God is in their presence. Reality is this. Insurance companies and financial institutions can build better buildings than churches ever can, or at least they should build better buildings than churches ever can because it's, it's part of their life. They've got to impress people. It's part of their life. It's not part of ours. We don't have to compete with that. We shouldn't compete with that. Nashville can probably put out a little better music. That's fine. Because it's life to them. It's not life to us. Toastmasters and pop psychology gurus can probably, gurus can probably put out better preaching, better speaking, while more people, politicians can probably raise more money a little bit more finessful than, than we do. Though, aren't we doing a good job? What's distinctive is not... The one thing we've got, the one thing we've got going for us is Jesus Christ. And He is enough. Amen? He is enough. What we hang our hat on is not where we are, how we're preaching, how the music is, how our programs are. What we hang our hat on is how our Lord loves us, praise God. How His presence is in our midst. Flashiness. Stay away from it. Stay away from it. What's distinctive is Jesus Christ. The second thing, and cover this quickly, is character. Character. There was a tendency on the part of Israel, when they weren't trying to be like the world, they got life from not being like the world. And when they weren't trying to to compete with the world and do it better than the world, then they just isolated themselves and they felt self-righteous. They said this, well, we are not like them. What is distinctive about us is our character. We are holier than they are. We're more righteous than they are. We follow the law and they don't. We're distinctive in that way. And I believe the church does the same thing sometimes. Do we not sometimes hang our hat? We, whether... take a, If the shoe fits, wear it. If not, look at someone else's feet. <laughs> sometimes, is it not explicit or implicit part of our identity, part of our distinctive is that we're not like the world, we're, we're better than the world, we're, we don't do those things. It sometimes positively amazes me the lengths to which some... Christians will go in order to find something distinctive about them. Oh, here's a sin I don't do. And then they, they really pump that one up because they don't do it. And, and we get, you know, some stuff that's not even in the Bible. You know, we just cut the pie a little thinner. Here, here's a distinctive thing. Here, here's a little, little more refined rule that, that we live by. Sometimes we use this against one another. A lot of times we lose, use this against one another. Here's an example. Uh, re- recently, several months ago, I guess, I uh, got very upset at my daughter. Um, she deserved it. Uh, she was, uh, but but I, I popped a cork. Uh, you know, my 18-year-old daughter, God bless her soul. I just lost it. Uh, and um, you know, maybe teenagers are wired to do that. I don't know. But but I I, I just lost it. I, I swore at her. Right, okay, can we be honest here? I know you never swear, but I do. I'm going to confess that. I, and uh, she did what probably some of you are doing right now. She said, and you're a pastor. <laughs> now, see, she deserved what I gave her, but I deserved what she gave me, so we deserved each other. And I got her permission to use that example, but she, she only would do it on the condition that I confessed my sin as well as hers. So... <laughs> Too shaved to both of us. But, you know, that, that tendency is like, and, and, and you call yourself a Christian. Uh, 
These people dare call them, this is supposed to be a church? Um, people lose their faith because they think that one of the things that's supposed to be distinctive about the church is, is that there's this unique moral category that they float in. Now, the, the balance is this. Where Jesus Christ is present in a life, it's going to make a difference. It's got to make a difference. If it's not making a difference, something is profoundly wrong. Jesus Christ makes a difference. But the distinctive thing about us isn't the difference. It's the Jesus Christ who makes the difference. Are you seeing the distinction? Very important. We sometimes use it. I can't tell you the number of students that I have talked with at Bethel who have come to Bethel College, and sometimes they're from small towns or whatever, and, and, and sometimes not, but they, 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 their faith goes into a tizzy because of, of what some of the kids on campus are doing. I, I'm really glad the president of, of Bethel College it doesn't go to this congregation because he'd be very nervous a lot of the time whenever I talk about Bethel College. But the reality is that Bethel College is a pretty ordinary Christian school. you got about 25% of the kids who are on fire for God, 25% of the kids who are on fire for the devil, and 50% of the kids, the majority, are kind of somewhere in between. That's reality, folks. And so these people come to Bethel College and they think they're going to find some kind of heavenly utopia and they maybe get roommates who are part of the 25% that are, are not saved and they're out there partying with the devil and doing all sorts of other crazy stuff. And so then they ask, how can Christy, this isn't true, this isn't real, you know. Well, who told you that the truthful footnote here, never, don't judge Buddha on the basis of what Buddhists do and don't judge Christianity or Christ on the basis of what Christians do, all right? Those are two very, very different things. Good to keep them apart. Okay, you can go ahead and judge the Buddhists, but don't judge the, the church. <laughs> but they, they empower certain people with the authority to decide for them what their worldview is going to be on the basis of, of how they live. I can't believe some of the weird thinking that goes on. A couple years ago, I had a student come into my office all mixed up. Here's why she was mixed up. She had a, her roommates were, were, were being mean to her. They weren't, weren't giving her enough bathroom time or something, I suppose. And in the meantime, she got a job at a restaurant, and she was working with two gay people. And she said, you know what? These gay people are nicer than my roommates. <laughs> and I was thinking, oh yeah, you know, there's that Bible verse that says that gay people have fangs, you know, and they go around really mean, and they rip up people, right? I mean... Did you think that somehow people who claim to be Christian, that they have a corner in the market on niceness? Or people have the same thing when they confront a nice Hindu, or a nice Muslim, or a nice non-Christian, whatever. And then they know of some people who are not nice in the church. And it makes them wonder, is this whole thing true? But see, that whole thinking is so, is so mixed up. Um, the distinctive thing about the church, I don't believe any more than with Israel, what was distinctive about them wasn't their moral nature. What's distinctive about the church isn't it's moral character. It should be different. But even when it is different, that's not what makes us distinct. My experience has been this. Uh, I, I, the, the, the kindest, most Christ-like, most loving, most sacrificial people I've ever met have been Christians in the church. But they haven't been the majority. Uh, I've also, it's also the case that the most petty... Uh, and sometimes, in fact, in a couple of cases, most evil people I've ever met have been in the church. In fact, I'll go further and say that I think Scott Peck is right, and that evil people gravitate towards the church. If you were a wolf, where would you like to hang out? Think about it. In fact, I would agree with Scott Peck in saying that the most evil people on the planet gravitate towards the ministry. If you were a wolf, where would you want to be? And that has been my experience. Not widespread, but when I've confronted it, it's been amazing to me. 
And most people are in between the two. Like myself, we are in process on this. And that's just kind of the run-of-the-mill sort of thing. I made a commitment to the Lord about 20 years ago after a horrendous church experience. Some of you have come from horrendous church experiences. When things that were said to you or things that were done to you were just stuff that nobody in the world would think of doing to you. Maybe some of you have been through that. I have. And I made this commitment to the Lord, and I think it's a good commitment to make. It was simply this. Lord, I'm going to continue to go to church because your word tells me to. And if you lead me to, I will even serve in the church. Uh, but I'm going to do it because of you, despite the church. Not because of the church. And it's just God's sense of humor that eventually he makes me the senior pastor of a church, which is not something I ever aspired to. Uh, but that, there, there you go. That is, to me, I think that's a very realistic uh, commitment to make. Because the reality is, is that the church doesn't have a mark, corner on the market when it comes to good behavior. In fact, sometimes the behavior that's out there and the attitudes that are out there are better than the attitudes that you'd find in the church, however you define the church, whether it's a Sunday morning thing or whatever. I have sometimes wondered, maybe you have too, you say this, God, look, I don't get it. You are almighty. You are all-powerful. You're the God of the universe. You created everything. You spoke everything into existence. You can do anything you want. And what you want is to win the world back to yourself and get it from the devil. And, and this is the best? The church is the means by which you're going to do it? Is this the best you could come up with? Couldn't you do a little bit better? It does seem that there's an incongruity between the nature of the church and the nature of the God who calls the church. I used to wonder about that. And if you're going to try, if you're going to, try to judge the truthfulness of God on the basis of the, 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 the quality of the church, your theology is going to be in trouble. The answer that the Lord finally gave me was this. He says, yes, Greg, I could have done better. But I didn't want to. Um, I know what I'm doing here, Greg. And then he shows me 1 Corinthians chapter 1, which basically says this. God has chosen the foolish things of this world to confound the wise, and the weak things of this world to confound the strong, to overturn the strong. You see, I suppose God could have defeated the devil in a lot of ways. Maybe he could have made a super Arnold Schwarzenegger archangel who could just come down and beat the devil all up and, and all these other angels that could just win the war, you know. But if God would have done that, then, then God would have got some of the credit, but the angels would have got the rest of the credit. So instead, God hits upon this plan. I will too use the two most foolish things I can think of to win this world back to myself. I'll use a cross, a crucified criminal, and then to finish up the job, that will deal the death blow to Satan. And to finish up the job, I'm going to take the former slaves of the enemy and use them to pounce on the devil's head. Amen. So God, see the, the, the bottom line is this, God wants it this way. He's saying this, if God can use a bunch of half-baked, in-process, sometimes petty, sometimes carnal, in-fighting, bickering uh, former slaves like us to win the world back to God and to defeat Satan, then you know it was God who did it. Praise God. You know it was God. Amen. Amen. All the glory goes to Him. All the glory goes to Him. Now that doesn't mean that we should try to be all the things I just said that we sometimes are. No, we should strive for holiness like we strive for the best music to God, like we strive for the best preaching for God, like we strive to make the best of whatever building God gives us. You strive for the best, but it's not what should make us distinctive. The reality is this. We are a bunch of sinners who are saved by grace. What's real here is that I'm a sinner saved by grace. That's why I can tell you that I swore a couple months ago. I haven't sworn since, though. Uh, and boy, has God brought me... No. 
You know, we, we can be honest about this. We, we are. If you look around, don't, you know, we're a bunch of normal people and, and maybe slightly better than average. I, you know, maybe not, but even if we are, that's not the distinctive thing. The distinctive thing, the, the, the reason why we're here, the, what we're trying to always do when we ever get together is to say God is in our midst, to invite God to be in our midst. What we want to be about from beginning to end is not the buildings, it's not the music, it's not the preaching, it's not even our own character. What it's about is Jesus Christ. Amen. The one thing that is needful. When, Mary, when, when Jesus came to the house of Mary and Martha, Martha was running all around doing many, many, many things, all with good intentions, but Mary chose the better part, the Bible says in John chapter 11. She sat at the feet of Jesus Christ. She understood what her focus, the focus of faith was to be, centered on Jesus Christ, all of Jesus Christ, nothing but Jesus Christ, from beginning to end Jesus Christ, totally surrendered to Jesus Christ. That's what it's all about. That's the only thing it can ever be about is the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Christ who's present in our midst. Lord, if you're not here, then what is distinctive about us? What are we trying to do? Nashville does better music. Uh, you know, Fortis can build a better building. Toastmakers can come up with a, Toastmasters, whatever they're called, can come up with a better preacher. Uh, you know, what's distinctive about us is that God, by his grace, dwells in our midst. We need to always keep that focus. I want to end with this question to you. What is uh, your Christianity about? Just get back to the basics. Honestly, honestly, what's your Christianity about? Is a little peppy song on Sunday morning, a little ear tickling on, you know, from the preaching, a little get together here, a little pot roast there, a little this there, or whatever. Or is it on Sunday and Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday and next Sunday, next Monday and on? Is it about Jesus Christ? Knowing him more. The heart of Moses is to say, Lord, show us your ways. We want to know you. Lord, we hunger and thirst after you. Pray with me right now. Lord, we hunger and thirst after you, Lord. Uh, God, life is so empty without you. It is so empty without you, Lord God. Uh, God, uh, church minus you is a carnival. Preaching minus you is, is, is a wasted time. The best music in the world minus you, Lord God, is, is simply clanging cymbals, Lord. God, you are our reason for being, our reason for getting together, our reason for preaching, proclaiming, for worshiping, Lord God, our reason, Lord God, for sacrificing in our life to see your work go forward, Lord God. And I would pray, Lord God, we together now pray. Would you stand and pray with me here, Lord? I, 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 join hands together. And let's together just pray this prayer. Uh, uh, Father, we are just together surrendered to you right here and right now. Lord God, we are asking you as a congregation, as a collective whole right here and right now to carve off of our life all the accessories, all the extras, all the fluff and stuff insofar as those accessories and extras and fluff and stuff get in the way of our knowing you, Lord. Would you take it away? Lord, purify our faith. Purify our heart. Purify our minds, Lord, that you and you alone would be our Lord. You and you alone would be our God. You and you alone would be our reason for being. You and you alone would be the object of our hunger.